As candidates duke it out over who is best to lead the Conservative Party of Canada, many in the Conservative movement are asking what the party itself should look like and how to best position itself to beat the Liberals in the next election. After three straight losses, many see the next campaign as being mission critical for the party. Tasha Carradine, principal at Navigator Limited and author of the new book, The Right Path, joins me to discuss how conservative politics have become a reaction to Justin Trudeau's policies, what sort of policies would best expand the CPC's voting base, and why the freedom message may turn off some Canadians. Don't forget you can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, we're even on Amazon Music now. I'd love it if you could leave us a rating, a review, and tell your friends about us. So Tasha, as we're talking now, you are just about set to head out on a bit of a whirlwind tour for the launch of your new book, The Right Path, looking essentially at what conservatives need to do to be successful in Canada. Why this book and why now? Well, a lot of whys there, Rob. And um, (laughs) (laughs) the main reason is because I care very much about the Conservative Party and I care also about democracy in this country. I was involved with the Conservative Party when I was younger, way back in the day, but I've also followed conservative politics, commented, and and sort of had a soft spot for that my whole life. What I found, though, is after the last election, there were a lot of people doing a lot of soul-searching about where the party should go, and that's where I actually started writing a book. But things accelerated because of the convoy protests in uh, January and then Aaron O'Toole's departure from the party. So things took on an urgency. So that's the now piece, you know, to get the book out now when people are facing a choice. The book is not about who should lead the party, but about how the party should lead the country. And I think that is the bigger question that members should consider. So I hope it helps them when they're making their decisions and when they're looking to the future as to where the CPC should go. Mm -hmm. And I mean, these are important questions for the conservative movement in Canada right now, especially, you know, not only losing the 2015 election, but losing the 2019 election, losing the 2021 election. It's not exactly been a great six years for the conservative movement. We've (laughs) been through two leaders. They're looking for a third Why do you suppose conservative politics is where it is right now? Well, the last three elections, I believe, were lost for the same reason, which is a lack of trust. In 2015, the conservatives broke trust with new Canadians who they had very actively courted, who had supported them very much, especially in the GTA, where I'm talking to you from today. And the barbaric practices, snitch line, uh, the t- attention around the kneecap, all that stuff. I mean, I spoke to, to many new Canadian conservatives. That, that was a real problem. So that was the first broken trust. Then there was Andrew Scheer on issues, mostly of social conservatism, including abortion, where there was accusations of hidden agendas. Where does he stand? What is he really for? Where's the party going to go? And there was, again, a mistrust about what the party really was representing. And then in 2021, of course, Aaron O'Toole was accused of flip-flopping from a blue Tory to a more center-right, and that angered other groups of people within the party, mostly. So what you ended up finding is over the course of this time, it's as if the conservatives have kind of lost their way. People don't know what their brand is. They're defined by others, including the liberals, as to, as to who they are. So you know, voters look at this and they say, well, well, you know, we want to go with something we, we understand and we know. And candidates I spoke to from the last election said at the door, they were told, we don't know who you are, what you stand for. So that is part of the problem as to where the conservatives are. And there's also, of course, the fact that they had a liberal government that was headed by a very charismatic prime minister in 2015, came in, changed a lot of things. And that stoked another 
kind of trend, which is populism. And as, as I discussed in the National Post, Trudeau's time in office sort of paved the way for a lot of the populist reaction that you see, that you saw in the United States, you've seen it in Britain, you've seen, I mean, you know, pendulum swing and people react to what's there. And populism is a reactive movement. The pandemic certainly was one of the big things it reacted to or grew from, and we can talk about that, but Trudeau was as well. So that's a combination of things that have brought the conservatives to this place of, you know, where do we go from here? You mentioned Justin Trudeau. Obviously, the Liberal Party of today different than it was under past liberal leaders, definitely different than some of the liberal leaders that Stephen Harper squared off against during his time as prime minister. How has Justin Trudeau changed the liberal party in Canada and how has that affected or caused a reaction within the conservative movement to their approach to politics and potentially trying to take down the prime minister in the next election? What Trudeau did was very similar to what Barack Obama did in the United States, which might sound strange because they're very different people, obviously, background-wise, but they both had the same sort of effect on their country in that they did champion a lot of identity politics, what we call woke politics, and this provoked a backlash against what they stood for. In Trudeau's case, it was kind of almost worse because he also had a hypocrisy factor. A lot of people remember his blackface memes. So when he took a knee for Black Lives Matter, people said, well, isn't that a bit of a contradiction? Or when he stood up for women's rights and says, I'm a feminist, and they think back, well, you know, you've been accused of some unsalutary behavior and look how you treated Jody Wilson-Raybould, you know, big indigenous feminist, strong woman in your cabinet and Jane Philpott too. I mean, you know, you're not walking the walk here. Even if you don't like the walk, you're not, we don't like it. You're not walking it either. So it was really, really a combination of things. But the other thing Trudeau did, and this is very relevant to conservatives, is his approach was to make people love government. He took a lot of what Christopher Freeland wrote in Plutocrats, this book that she had about um, the hollowing out of the American middle class, Mm -hmm. and applied it to Canada. And in fact, the problem is that the situations were not the same. In the United States, yes, the middle class since the 2008-2009 recession had really fallen behind. But in Canada, under Stephen Harper, they had actually done very well. So when Trudeau started redistributing money through things like the child benefit to the middle class, telling them government's your friend, look, we're sending you checks. Isn't this great? He actually ended up hurting them. Middle class incomes actually went down over the period that he was in office. There was a net loss in terms of hours worked because people chose to work less because they were getting government benefits. But the result of that is over time, they lost ground because they lost ground in careers and they lost ground in money that came in the door and in income. So he used a tactic to combat a problem that wasn't there and created one instead. So for conservatives, actually, it's an opportunity to say, look, your big government experiment here did not work. It actually hurt the people you were supposed to help. Our recipe is different. We believe in opportunity. We don't believe in this sort of redistributionist government is your friend. And you could really carve out a very different platform, I believe, that would appeal to people and show them you're going to give them a hand up and not a handout. What you raise is pretty interesting because if you look at U.S. politics and you look at former President Donald Trump, he talked a lot in the 2016 election about how, you know, you're not getting ahead, you're being left behind. He courted a lot of people who felt disenfranchised economically and politically and allowed them to feel like that they had someone looking out for them. Meanwhile, we had Justin Trudeau, who was in theory playing that same message, you know, we're, we're going to look out for the middle class, obviously doing it different than, than U.S. politicians did. You'd think that would be a winning message for them. So how did it backfire for them and what opportunity does it open up for the conservatives? Trudeau's opened up two opportunities. 
three actually. One, as I say, by stoking the woke in the sense that he has made people realize that identity politics actually creates an unfair playing field. And the research I looked at, very interesting, says that populism does not grow from inequality. That's the common perception. People think, oh, populism is a reaction to inequality, to things like immigration policy, you know, Donald Trump and all. Actually, no. Populism stems from a lack of social mobility. When people feel they do all the right things, they get the job, they save the money, they get the education, and they still cannot get ahead. They still cannot buy that house. They still cannot make ends meet. The sense of being blocked and that then what you end up with is people saying, oh, it's such and such fault. Like it's the elite's fault. They're standing in your way, right? And Justin Trudeau, he's an elite. He's standing in your way. Get rid of the gatekeepers, this kind of language. We're hearing that from obviously some of the candidates in this race. That's actually not the answer because there are always going to be some elites. You know, there's always going to be some people who are in charge of whatever because we have structures in society. So the answer is not to get rid of the elites. The answer is to give people that social mobility and equality of opportunity. So that for conservatives is a big one. Equality of opportunity and opportunity itself is something that goes back to like 1789, Edmund Burke, the grandfather of conservatism himself, who wrote about it then. The idea that you create a level playing field and government has a role in that, not to pick favorites like Trudeau does, not to give people money from one pot to another. No, it is to give people the basics um, that they can't do themselves, such as a functional healthcare system, functional educational system to allow people to have the basic tools to then leverage that with their own initiative and responsibility. And people will accept unequal outcomes in society. They know not everyone's going to get to the same place as long as the game is fair. So don't privilege someone because of their identity. Don't privilege them because they're an elite. Don't privilege them because they're your friend. Give everyone a fair shot and they will feel like they're satisfied with that. And that's where conservatives can come in because it's totally consistent with the concept of conservatism, of things like smaller government, local government, family, small platoons of society, you know, people aren't dictating to you from on high how you should live and what you should do. This resonates with, as you can tell, people within the, you know, convoy conservatives, as I call them, it resonates with people in the middle class, it resonates with a whole host of voters that right now are looking for a home. And how would that play out? What kind of policies would you expect to see from a conservative leadership candidate to address that? You can have a number of them. And some of them I point to, for example, on the issue of local government. Okay, that's one big thing. Conservatives are very much about local. So gun control or gun regulation. We know that rural and urban centers have very different views on the use of guns and firearms and they're, because their lived reality is very different. So it actually makes sense from a conservative perspective and from a perspective generally to say, okay, we are not going to necessarily have the same requirements in different places. We are going to have different ones that suit the needs of the people who live there. That's one. Another very basic one for opportunity is leaving more money in your pocket, lower taxes. Stephen Harper lowered taxes. Stephen Harper cut, you know, cut the GST, most, most famously when he came in. But his view was you keep government small by giving it fewer means at its disposal. That is a very conservative view. And it also goes to the idea that, you know, if you want to buy that house, you need to have the wherewithal to do it. So we're going to help you do that. We're going to help you keep more of what you make. That is a very basic thing. Then there are other things that could address issues of, you know, that are actually relating to new challenges, like for young people, the gig economy, for example. You know, many people now have 
jobs. They have multiple jobs. They don't have the same kind of benefits they used to have. You just had one big employer. So you have a situation where workers work is more precarious. Doug Ford recognized this in Ontario. He actually said, okay, you know, after a bit of resistance, then he said, well, yes, we're going to make sure workers who are not getting these benefits have sick days, have time, have the sort of things to give themselves a sense of security that they then can manage their lives and it goes to that whole, it goes to the issue of the control that some candidates are talking about. It goes to opportunity to be able to choose your work and, and realize that, okay, I can actually do what I want to do and still get ahead. You know, I don't have to make, I don't have to decide to work for a big company that just because of their benefits plan, even if they have one, I can do, I can pursue my passions, which is really important to young people. I'll tell you. So there's a whole bunch of things where conservatives can facilitate opportunity, facilitate choice. And I think that if they, package this in a way that people understood, I think it would be very relatable. And then there's, of course, a big vision, too, which I articulated at the end of the book, that, you know, I think for Canada itself, patriotism is also a big thing that I found young people are looking for from the Conservative Party. They like it for that. So there's other things as well that could appeal to a greater sense of nationhood. I think that could be very inspiring. We'll be right back. Some of the points that you just raised, you talked a lot about younger Canadians, and it used to be in the conservative movement, you'd have your reform conservatives or your Canadian Alliance conservatives, and then you'd have your red Tories, your PC conservatives. And that was kind of the balance in the conservative movement. How has that changed, I guess, in the last two decades since the PC party and the Canadian Alliance came together? Has that changed? Are we looking at a different balance within the the conservative party of Canada? Well, yes, in the sense that people assume the merger initially was a sort of 50-50 deal, like a marriage of equals. It was not. When you look at the numbers, you realize under the the, the points system actually kind of hid a bit <laughs> the votes that, that and, and similar to, to this current point system, people say, well, you know, it doesn't matter how many people you have, it's where you have them that gets you elected. And the same way, what we saw was in the original election of Stephen Harper, that you ended up with a situation where reform was actually quite dominant. About two-thirds of the votes cast were from the Reform Alliance. So you ended up with a situation where the PC portion was already marginalized from the start. It had less clout within the party. As a result, over time, you did see policies that were more favorable to the Reform Canadian Alliance point of view. But the point is, the party needs to grow beyond that if it's going to win government. And I identify in the book the three areas it needs to do that, which are new Canadians, urban and suburban voters, and of course, the young Canadians we talked about earlier. If you don't get those voter bases over time, you're going to die as a party. It's just math. It is not, you know, it's this is what you have to do. You have to move beyond Western, move beyond rural, move uh, beyond older voters. Otherwise, you will not be a factor because you can get 34% of the popular vote, but if it's concentrated in certain portions and demographics, you're not going to get enough seats. So the conservatives have to find a way to make their principles relatable to those groups and to find a way to keep the base, but also expand it. That is the biggest challenge. So that's the prescription in the book is how to do that. There's a lot of detail people can, can read about, but writ large, that's what the conservatives have to be focused on going forward. It's an interesting examination, this idea around you know expanding the base, but retaining the base, especially now, because as we've seen you know, the COVID-19 pandemic really amplified this idea of hyperpartisanship or tribalism. You know, you look at factions of the conservative base that have a supreme 
unmitigated hate for the prime minister and any semblance of moderation within policy or within the movement is seen as a betrayal. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you look at even Aaron O'Toole, you know, I know that there were other issues with Aaron O'Toole's leadership within the party and the fact that they lost the election didn't help. But this idea that because he seemed not a fan of the convoy movement in Ottawa, that that was a reason to oust him. Right. That was seen as as kind of the final straw for him. So how does a party where there is this divisiveness within the party itself address keep maintaining the base who seem very, I don't say weaponized or militarized, but very entrenched in their positions while also expanding the base to be able to win a general election? Okay, so you have to give people something else to rally around. That is the key. You, it's basically a almost a campaign of mass distraction, but a positive one, mm-hmm. not you know some shiny object in the corner. Just to, no, you need to give them a vision to rally around because the groups you're talking about, and I, I name them in the book: convoy conservatives, club conservatives, and common sense Canadians. The club and the convoy are at a bit of a war within the party. And this is a problem. The club being seen as the elites, right? And the convoy will demonize them and say, elites are bad. They're standing in the way. The problem is your party's full of elites. And those elites have helped elect you. They are in some parts of the country, a very dominant force within the party. And if you alienate them and get rid of them, then you're going to, you cut off your nose to spite your face. You're not going to win. If you want to grow the party, you can grow it. If you grow it in the direction only of people who support the convoy and eschew the rest, that is too small a voter pool. You know, the accessible voter pool are those common sense Canadians, the center-right, blue liberal, red Tory, conservative-minded middle-class, non-political middle-class, who are just pragmatic and want to get ahead. Those are your voters. So give them something to rally around. So the two things I say, well, you give them the concept of opportunity, which spans all of these groups. Freedom is a tarnished word. I don't care what people say. Half of the people will look at this, and I talk to Hundreds of people in writing this book, and I will tell you, uh, at least half of them said freedom is not something they want to hear about. They think of the U.S., they think of Trump, they don't like it. Opportunity, however, is something that is common to everyone, because at the end of the day, that's what people really want. It's not, it's the opportunity to, you know, keep your business and not be hampered by a mandate, not necessarily freedom. So language is important. But the other second thing I say is a vision for Canada that people can subscribe to. And I articulate this as Canada as an energy superpower. Now, Stephen Harper tried a bit of that. He didn't get pipelines built. But the idea is not to simply focus on fossil fuels. Yes, we should focus on oil and gas to be responsibly extracted and stand up for that because that is part of you know our economy, our culture as a nation, but also move forward to the development of critical minerals and the electrification and what's needed for electrification in the future to contribute to the world. Canada can be a leader in the world in energy production, whether it's critical minerals or green hydrogen or other things. And it's in our tradition. You know, Canada is a hewer, wood, and drawer of water, whether we like it or not. In fact, we should embrace that. We have been, since our creation, a source of resources for the globe. And we could build on that heritage, be proud of it. Doug Ford's already doing this with a ring of fire. We know in British Columbia also, there's a lot of resources that could be mined. And we have Indigenous groups, Indigenous communities who are interested in this. Mining is, in fact, the biggest employer of Indigenous people in Canada. Most people probably don't know that, but it is. So, There's a lot of things that could span reconciliation, the economy, energy, the environment. If you wrap it in a package, and some of the candidates are already talking about in this leadership race, Jean Charest is talking about it, 
Pierre Polyev has touched on it. Roman Weber has talked about it. It's there. Mm -hmm. And we should own it and give people a positive vision and say, hey, let's come together around this and forget, you know, the last two years of nightmare with the pandemic and everything that's divided us. One last question. There's a working theory that this is Justin Trudeau's last term as prime minister. (laughs) He likely won't be around for the next election, which is supposed to be in 2025, so long as the NDP hold up their end of the pact and support the liberal government through till the next election. So we'll presumably, once we get through this conservative leadership race, we could eventually see a liberal leadership race. Does... The prospect of a new leader, whether it's someone like Christia Freeland or, you know, Mark Carney, does that change the calculus for the Conservative Party? Does that make it more challenging for them to win the next election without facing off against Trudeau, who is seen by many as quite a polarizing figure? I don't know. I don't think so. I think the next election, because if the economy keeps going the way it is, it's going to be fought very much around pocketbook issues, and which on which the conservatives are strong. And so whoever inherits Trudeau's mantle will also wear that. I mean, Christopher Freeland will wear it in a big way, right? Mm-hmm. And Mark Carney to an extent as well. He is as much a redistributionist as Trudeau. If you read his book, it's all about, you know, this big state answer solution to, to problems. So I think that you're going to be dealing with the same ethos. If either of them won, you know, Bill Morneau said it recently. He said the, the blue liberal faction has no champion in this. There's, there's no one running for them. There's no one there. The government has moved so far to the left. So what I see, unless someone comes out of the ether, is a much more red liberal party than we've ever seen before. Doing a deal with the NDP, moving left, all this stuff. So the conservatives can still run on the same issues, even if the figurehead is different. So I'm confident that however the conservative race shakes out and whatever happens with the liberal race, the conservatives have a real opening and they need to take it. If they don't take it this time, it will be four losses in a row. And that is, you know, the average Canadian will start to lose faith that they'll ever get back into government. The new book, The Right Path, launches this week. You can find more about it at therightpathbook.com. Tasha Carradin, thanks for your time. Oh, thank you so much. Late Tuesday evening, it was announced Tory leadership candidate Patrick Brown has been disqualified from the leadership race due to, quote, serious allegations of wrongdoing that appear to violate Canadian election law. As if this recording, no details of the allegations have been officially disclosed, but sources have told the National Post that there were concerns about the Brown campaign's donations and finances. 10.3 is produced by Sean Knox, theme music by Bryce Hall. Thanks to my guest, Tasha Carradin. You can find more about The Right Path at therightpathbook.com, and you can read an excerpt at nationalpost.com. I'm Dave Breckenridge. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.